Hi everyone, and welcome back to Think Like a Human. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Will Cilio, and in this episode, the conversation with Lawrence continues. Um, I hope you all enjoyed the last conversation. This one is more focused on the internet and uncertainty, and some of the ways that the era of information that we live in today has contributed to the current political climate. The previous episode is by no means required listening for this one, um, though in the beginning I do explain some um, stuff surrounding the philosopher who, who we were focused on in our conversation, so while that might be helpful, it certainly isn't, um, isn't required in any sense, and, um, but it was a, a very interesting part one to this conversation, so if you haven't listened to it, uh, would highly recommend. I really just think it's so fascinating to hear the perspective of someone who has lived through the entire internet slash information revolution um, and still has an active interest in it as it continues to develop today. Um, so I had a lot of fun recording this episode and I hope you guys enjoy. Thanks for listening. It's, it's definitely a scary thing. Um, but let's go, I'm not just gonna backtrack a little bit to something you said earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, Specifically with his his bullshit and mm-hmm. and how it how it relates to um, any idea of of objective truth, I guess, because like you were saying with these um, with the support he's he's drumming up from these sort of like alt right internet communities where there's already this sort of uh, this sort of devaluing of the truth and this sort of like you were talking about this ironic. Um, let's take this idea and run with it and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, is eventually it kind of becomes, um, you can, you can not believe it, but eventually it's going to, it's going to gain some weight to it. It's going to snowball and just start rolling. Um, and it's interesting how that plays into the internet. Um, because I don't know, there's just this, this wealth of information out there. And so much of it has not been um, has not been rigorously reviewed, and so much of it is just someone spewing their thoughts out there. Um, and I don't know. I guess Trump's Trump's bullshit and the position of power that he holds today, I think, could almost be seen as a sort of um, yeah, a sort of natural outgrowth of this sort of era of information and everything that's that goes with it. I mean, if you ask yourself, you know just at the most fundamental level, what is it that's missing? Um, I'd argue that it's really it's really simple. I mean, you know, what's missing is a commitment to learning. I mean, it's not as though, I mean, it's funny, I, I you know, we talked about Plato, but you know, I'm no Platonist. Uh, I don't know, I don't believe there's an absolute truth that we can, in any case, know. I guess I'm a Gerdellist. Um, but, but I do believe that, you know, what science is about, but more broadly, what intellectual inquiry is about, is trying over time to be less and less wrong. Right, right. <laughs> and, and that's a... That's almost a moral commitment mm-hmm. uh, that means that one operates with, as a friend of mine used to put it, 
strong hypotheses weakly held. You kind of can't make your way through life without a story and a set of assumptions and, you know, on which to base your actions. Mm -hmm. But ideally, you operate in a fashion that is not just open to, but inviting of revision right. by what you can learn. If we could make that attitude contagious somehow in the United States, I don't think there's any question this transition would end and turn into something hard for me to picture, you know, much less describe, but something healthy. Right, right, right. That's really interesting. I love that idea of learning. Um, the idea of, of, of trying to be less wrong does seem yeah. to go completely against like almost everything that's out there um, on the internet. The overall structure that I see behind that is it's like a narrowing down. Even if there isn't, say, this objective truth out there, even if there isn't that little uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, it's still working for that. It's still thinking that the endeavor towards it is a worthy endeavor. Whereas with all this... Um, the, the with all this information out there on the internet, it seems like instead it's a it's a broadening. Well, and I think you're right. I yeah. mean, I think it's and it's a it's a function of those competing narratives. I think you know that have gotten more and more divergent as they become somehow more and more central to our identities. In the absence of, uh, I mean, you know, this conversation could digress into you know a long discussion of public education in the U.S. and all kinds of mm -hmm. things, which it shouldn't, but. Um, but what many, many, many behavioral psychologists and, and sociologists have observed of, of our society over the last couple of decades is it's become increasingly uh, a, you know, a, a matter of uh, these contending, these competing narratives that people have and of which they feel, if you will, where they feel ownership, they feel protective, uh, protective. So having a conversation with someone is less about trying to learn than it is about trying to score. Right. You know, this is, I mean, that's why, you know, as experiment after experiment is demonstrated, if you confront someone with a belief that's not factual with the facts that suggest they're wrong, it tends to harden their belief, not soften it. Because somehow we've moved into this, this bizarre advocacy for point of view as opposed to actual inquiry right it's um, like everyone everyone in a certain sense believes that they have almost like the right to be right well you know it's funny it, it there was a show on on television uh back in the 80s called la law that was you know it it portrayed the life of lawyers as uh full of Armani suits and fast cars and, you know, really glamorous. And it, you know, was a drama. So it was all about winning in court. Right. It had the effect of a huge increase in law school admissions. Uh, I mean, it's a measurable increase in law school admissions. Now, with all due respect to the philosopher whose thinking kicked off this piece, uh, the law in this country uh, is a very curious beast that is in the end, for all her 
worthy thinking about the importance of the truth, not all that concerned uh, with the truth. Yeah. Uh, it is rather concerned with a very defined process that is, in effect, a game that people play in an attempt to win um, without regard to truth or justice or any of those sorts of things. Um, that attitude, that it is less about trying to find what's true or fair or whatever, but it is rather a game that exists to be won. Mm -hmm. uh, this kind of uh, contending advocates kind of thing. That, that seems to have infected all of civil discourse in a way that is profoundly unhelpful unhealthy and unhelpful uh, so yeah I blame it all on LA law yeah yeah and I I honestly I see that in in philosophy too um, just as a as a practice and as a and that was definitely a, a large part of the inspiration for this podcast was I felt like or just generally starting to feel like philosophy has been gamified in that sort of way and people are focused on beating the other person's argument rather than trying to work towards a grander goal of like of truth uh, or or of of something well you know it, it happens even in science i mean it, ideally certainly in commercial science you know where drug companies will suppress bad clinical trial results in order mm -hmm. to get stuff approved but even in other i mean there's a great great book called Big Fat Lie uh, that's the work of a, a reporter who spent years researching this thing uh, that recounts the story of how uh, a, a study that was done, I, and I'm going to forget, it was like in the 30s or 40s at the University of Minnesota, uh, that led to the conclusion that we should probably take fat out of our diets because mm. it's unhealthy for us um, was flawed. I mean, it just wasn't right. And, and so as work continued <clears throat> and people began to come up with aberrant results, right, um, turned out that the establishment that had grown around the no-fat, low-fat kind of conclusion was sufficiently powerful that it could suppress all these other results. And, and basically has until recently, even now, I invite you to go into a grocery store and look at the yogurt selection. Um, they're still full of low-fat, non-fat yogurts and milks and you know all those things. When the current science makes it very clear those are at best not better for you and probably worse. Um, so even in science, this is an issue, right? Because right. it's become a world in which one is competitive for resources and for... No, we have to... I mean, it. it's a challenge to figure out how... Again, I keep coming back to it's all about an honest belief in learning. Yeah. Uh, and how one reestablishes that in a, a set of social superstructures, the law, science, philosophy, you know, 
in which they've been essentially, learning's been essentially ossified out is a real challenge. Yeah, yeah, it is. And that's, um, just to go back to your example there, I can, yeah, once again, I can totally see how even how even like trying to you can say on a on an individual personal level oh i i want to rebuild my commitment to to learning and i want to um yet at the same time it's 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 difficult to for for an individual to sort of navigate um rebuilding that commitment to learning in this sort of age where there's so much it feels like you could almost be learning the wrong things well, what's very easily. No, I think you're right. I think what's fascinating is, and, and so maybe I'm being a little unfair to L.A. law. Maybe it goes all the way back to you know neoclassical economics. But so you, you know the work of Thomas Kuhn. So he observes that we we tend to understand the world in a given way, and because as humans we make huge investments in these models that we carry around in our head, these maps, we find them very hard to change. So it's often the case when the kind of incontrovertible evidence starts coming in that they're wrong, that it can take decades for the paradigm to change. Um, and, and, And so add on to that the kind of winner-take-all, uh, both financially and in, in, in terms of sort of celebrity and character of neoclassical economics, which has pretty much infected the world. And that makes it even harder to change because those who own the old paradigms are winning the right. big prizes and getting the big grants and making the big money and and so we've arguably painted ourselves into a pretty grim corner because we have to confront not just the age-old human capacity to hang on to these maps we've got in our heads these models but also then if you will the neoclassical reinforcement. Yeah. Have you ever heard of um, or, or read the works of Alistair McIntyre? Yeah, I've heard. I, I haven't read. No. So he's a um, he's got this idea of um, or he's, he's, he's written this book uh, called After Virtue mm-hmm. and he's a, he's a virtue ethicist and so what he's talking about um, is he is talking about the um, a need to return to virtue ethics and how this has been spurred on by, in his opinion, the Enlightenment um, and Enlightenment thinking or Enlightenment... Um, I'm forgetting his exact words for it, but it's the Enlightenment-inspired sort of ethical theories of consequentialism and deontology in the ways that they sort of give the... Um, the onus to, to be moral to the individual. Um, there isn't much of a binding force, um, or specifically what he's what he's criticizing is the amount of freedom that's given to the individual in choosing where to draw the lines for their own morality. Yeah, and yeah. it uh, and whereas uh, what he what he claims um, 
with virtue ethics, there's this idea that the moral life is the happiest life and this idea of, of constant progress towards virtue that really resonates, at least for me, seems to resonate very well with the ideas of, of learning that you're, that you're talking about. Two recommendations for you. One, if you've never seen um, a pair of documentaries, they're long, but they're available on YouTube for free. Oh. Uh, uh, one is called Century of Self, um, and the other is called Hypernormalization. Um, and they're wonderful tellings of hypernormalization is kind of a sequel to Century of Self, but Century of Self begins with Sigmund Freud and his nephew, who's a guy named Edward Bernays, who essentially helped invent propaganda and then did invent PR and advertising as we know it uh, in this century, about how their thinking came to be sort of seminal and ultimately got reflected in this ever more an individual kind of life that we you know, we've come to know very consistent with what McIntyre's saying, so you might enjoy that. And the other is a book by John Ralston Saul called Voltaire's Bastards, which is again a sort of uh, it, Voltaire would be spinning in his grave if he knew what had become of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. you know, because right. they never he never intended that. It's a little yeah. like Adam Smith never, you know, when he talked about. Uh, free markets he was talking about free from rent not free from free from financial parasites not free from government right uh, right so i mean hello yeah <laughs> uh, but but anyway the, the the point is only i i think that there's a great deal there uh, i worry that and again back to neoclassical economics we have by creating this kind of weird uh, system in which every single thing in life can be denominated in in dollars. You know, everything right. has a price, including virtue. Um, you know, we've created a, 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 a kind of different understanding of virtue. Right. Um, that or or we've we've somehow accidentally sublimated virtue into wealth. Uh, yeah, it's it's almost seems that that seems to me to be kind of going back to the idea of objective truth, the understanding, the general understanding that there is no objective truth. I mean, it's first of all, it's it's a very important understanding, but second of all, I could definitely see it as undermining virtue in those sorts of ways because in a certain sense it's almost like like if, if virtue is to be this absolute grounding if there is no objective truth basically there's no objective morals and so if there are no objective morals then in a certain sense yeah you like if there if there's yeah there's nothing there's no like well and i, I keep on saying this word binding force but well you know, it's, no it is I, that. I look i agree there's no sort of it's. I fear the issue isn't that we have misplaced a commitment to virtue and we have simply to find it again. We have replaced 
a commitment to virtue with something else that has come to stand for for virtue, for worth, for all kinds of things, uh, wealth that is hugely problematic and that, you know, back to where we started is fueling a lot of the, uh, the divergence that we're seeing in civil discourse. Um, From your perspective as a scenario planner, as someone involved in this practice of, um, of sort of trying to, um, actually, well, first of all, why don't you just, can you give us a brief explanation of, of scenario planning? I know that's going to be an unfamiliar concept to people. Oh, sure. Well, scenario planning is a technique for looking out into the future, usually 10 to 20 years. Uh, so a relatively long period past several planning horizons, um, looking out 10 to 20 years at what could happen. So scenario planning is kind of the, the opposite of forecasting. You know, if in forecasting you sharpen your pencil and you try to project what's going to unfold over the next period, scenario planning fully cops to the fact that there is a great deal going on around us that really matters to whether any decisions we make today are going to turn out to be smart or dumb over which we have no control at all. Um, you know, what's the global economy going to be like? What are regulations going to look like? What's technology going to be like? What are people's values and lifestyles going to be like? What's the environment going to be like? What, I mean, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we go through a very disciplined process of trying to understand how those kinds of dynamics that are relevant to whomever we're doing this work with, you know, a, a not-for-profit or a company or a government or a labor union, whatever they care about. We look at the forces that would be most impactful on them and try to, in effect, understand the envelope of plausible outcomes they might have to face. So we identify not one future, but multiple futures that show not just what kinds of challenges and opportunities they might face, but how these dynamics work together. Um, having done that, we can extract two kinds of things from that. One is a set of what you might call robust implications. There's some things that for all that uncertainty, it's smart to do. And if that's the case, then it probably is actually smart to go ahead and do them. Right. right. So these are things that an organization can just get on with. The much more interesting and frankly useful outcome are what we call contingent implications. These are things that really make sense if the future heads in one direction, but really don't make sense if it heads in another. They're really important, you know, in one quadrant, but really poisonous in another. These we, we identify, you know, we map onto our scenarios. And then we, uh, we basically go back into the stories we told about these futures and begin to try to identify early warning signs. Right. So how would you know the future is tipping this way versus that way? Um, and essentially, that allows one um, 
to create a kind of if-then early warning system. If you see these sorts of things happening, then do these things. But if you see those sorts of things happening, then do this other set of stuff. So we try to basically help our organizations learn their way into the future. Right, right. But it does seem like there is a an essential aspect of that, which is sort of a, an acceptance of a lack of objective truth in the sense that um, there isn't going to be one solution. There isn't going to be one thing that this company can do. It's It's all going to be based on the rapidly changing environment that that we all are in and 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 the factors that that potentially could impact the company it's funny it's not i mean i guess you could say truth about the future it's more that we just don't know i mean you know we and you and the point is you can't know right there it's a little like it's not like gerdell's theorem because the answer will become apparent later but you can't know it now right Uh, what we, but there is a kind of, 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 of there's a, a real tie to the issue you're on that plays through scenario planning. Often when we start one of the projects, we're kicking off, you know, we explain what we're going to be doing, why we're going to be doing it. The very first thing often, not always, but the very first thing we show people often is uh, a map of North America that was created at the end of the 17th century that looks, it has some kind of weird names on it. It's a little distorted from the view we've currently got of North America, but fundamentally it's cartographically correct, except for one thing. California is depicted as an island. And the the, the reason California is depicted as an island is that very early in that century, you know, Spanish explorers made it around the Cape and sailed up into oh. the you know, Gulf of Baja. Um, and they looked right and saw land, and looked left and saw land, and looked north and saw water. And then later made it to the Straits of, they call them the North Straits, we call them the Straits of Juan de Fuqua now. They sailed in, looked south, saw water, but then land on either side. Being good Cartesians, they connected those two points. And they got an island. Now, that would just be a kind of cartographical curiosity, but for the fact that you know maps are tools. At this point, we pause and, and remind the folks to whom we're speaking that this is true of printed maps. It's also true of mental maps that we carry, right? Uh, now, it was used as a tool by missionaries who were sent from Spain around to somewhere on the mission trail and to go inland and convert Native Americans to the faith. So they did what we would do, right? If they had to go to, you know, way inland, they rested after that long voyage. They got a whole bunch of mules together. Onto half the mules, they packed provisions. Onto the other half of the mules, they packed the carefully disassembled parts of their boat because they were going to need it, right? Right. to cross cross over to the mainland. Uh, so up they go over the Sierra Nevadas, down the other side onto basically the longest, driest beach, you know, anyone yeah. ever found, right? There's no water there. Um, so, you know, to this day, people find bits of boat out there and spin theories of Noah's Ark or aliens or whatever. But in fact, it's just the detritus of these poor monks, you know, who, 
who wrote back, right. you know, to the Home Office, you know, words to the effect of, you know, dear Bishop, whomever, we're in the desert, California's not an island, the maps are wrong, love Brother Juan, and, you know, the letter would make its way back. And months and months and months later, the reply would come from the Home Office. And it's funny, in my corporate clients and well many not just corporate clients many institutional clients laugh when they hear this because they recognize it the answer would come back from the home office no 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 california is an island you're just not what you think you are and this went on for decades until finally one of those monks got high enough in the catholic hierarchy to get close to the king and convince the king to change the maps that's still years because the king had to order his map makers to do it and they didn't want to do it. Right. right? Now, right. the point of all this is threefold. One, you know, we all use these metal maps, right? Uh, these metal maps desperately want to be complete, just like those Spanish explorers who connected those two points and got an island where there wasn't one. We make inferential leaps all the time of which we're not even aware uh, that dangerously are almost always correct right uh, and so we you know <laughs> when they aren't brings us to the second point if maps desperately want to be complete they equally desperately want to be believed our capacity as humans to ignore, write off, disregard, or otherwise discard physical evidence that we're wrong is astounding. Yeah. I mean, we are really good at that as a species. Which brings me to the third and really obvious but important point, which is why we do scenario planning. If you've got a map and it's wrong, you're liable to do something that isn't very smart. Um, maybe not quite as melodramatic as lugging a boat into the desert, but something that's pretty painful. And so scenario planning is a way of, of trying to make our mental maps less vulnerable. Right. And, and kind of implicitly a way of trying to instill a commitment to learning, a, a, an openness to revising the maps Right. That doesn't come naturally to us. You have to practice. Or, I mean, any of us do. Yeah. 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 That's very interesting. Um, and that totally, yeah, that totally plays into everything that we've been talking about. And, and this is the thing, right? If you believe a map that's wrong, I mean, it's funny. It, it, uh, in North Carolina, the state legislature, which is... Uh, you know, <clears throat> in the middle of court cases because they've gerrymandered themselves to stay Republican, you know, so they're very much in the pocket of developers. Um, the state legislature went so far because, uh, you know, there were in, in counties in, on, along the North Carolina coast, the zoning and the planning guys were beginning to say, wait a minute, sea levels are rising, tides are getting higher, you, you shouldn't build right on this this waterfront is dangerous, you know. Um, and the developers didn't like that because waterfront properties would sell. Yeah. So they went to the legislature and said, you got to fix this. So the legislature outlawed 
using environmental surveys that are any newer than the year 2000 to make zoning or planning decisions in the state of North Carolina. Uh, Now, uh, (laughs) that's, you know, so now they're building these things. Doesn't mean they're not going to be underwater. Right. Uh, It just means they got built. So this is the, I mean, this is a sort of self-inflicted wound, right? But it's funny, there's a great article. A woman went to Miami and spent two weeks looking for an apartment. Uh, Now, Miami and Miami Beach are already underwater, right? And there's really no question this is going to get worse. But she recounts the rather extraordinary extremes to which people went to avoid dealing with that. And while it seems pretty clear in the article that some of it is really just, you know, essentially, you know, bad faith Mm -hmm. salesmanship, people selling you something they know isn't going to last, much of it wasn't. You know, much of it was just avoidance, classic head in the sand stuff. Right, right. Back to back to Trump's bullshit. But I think it's a you know it's funny we talked about three different kinds of things you know the the performed irony the bullshit the lying, but there's a third thing there's a fourth thing I guess uh, that we're talking about here that is just plain denial. I guess it was Upton Sinclair right who said it's amazing what a man can believe if his paycheck depends on his believing it. Mm-hmm. Well, by extension. You know, if your home is Miami, your house is in Miami, you're, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's amazing what you can convince yourself literally not to hear Yeah. if it challenges your sense of your home. Right, right. And, and that's yet another thing. I mean, we've got, well, there's a whole other conversation around, I mean, it's just, well, anyway, that, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. No, a whole other conversation just around human nature. And, well, human nature, but also yeah. enabling, uh, enabling structures. You know, we we have uh, around flooding. You know, you can't homeowners insurance doesn't cover flooding. Only thing it covers flooding is federal flood insurance, which you can get. Federal flood insurance won't pay for ameliorating. Uh, you know, uh, changes uh, won't pay to jack your house up. It won't pay to do those sorts of things, um, which costs tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, it certainly won't pay for you to retreat, right? You know, from the from the floodplain. But it will pay to replace your entire house, which costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. Uh, right. I mean, it's just nuts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, it's, it seems like those are the kinds of scenarios that, or those are the types of situations that scenario planning um, could help all of us just on a, on a sort of like individual level of well, being able to think about just like just forcing what literally forcing oneself to consider the other possibilities 
as uncomfortable oh, yeah. as they might be. Well, that's certainly a hope. And there are other things being done that are really helpful. Uh, the, the, I, I had the opportunity to do some scenario planning work with the American Geophysical Union, the AGU, which is the professional society for a whole bunch of different earth sciences. There are geologists, seismologists, hydrologists, solar physicists. I mean, all these yeah. you know, different kinds of folks there. Uh, wonderful organization that has done a really interesting and tremendously useful thing. They've created uh, an agency, basically, where their members can volunteer in. So these are you know, faculty members. For the most part, they're faculty members at universities. Sometimes they're you know, USGS people or NASA people or whatever, but mostly they're faculty members. Uh, who, they make themselves available through this agency to work with city and county planning and zoning people to think this stuff through because even in the you know in, in the best of circumstances these guys don't have budgets to hire experts and the worst of circumstances they're prescribed from hiring experts so these guys will voluntarily come in and try to help so there there are things being done that are encouraging but it's tough yeah yeah, it is. Um, yeah, Lawrence, thanks so much for oh, sitting so down on the podcast. Well, my pleasure. Oh, I'm sorry. We're still on, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the biggest takeaways for me from this conversation was the idea of scenario planning as a sort of overcoming our basic human nature. Um, I've seen themes like this throughout the podcast from my dad's meditation to overcoming stereotypes and unconscious bias with April. And I really feel like it shows me or just highlights how much work that we have yet to do uh, in realizing our full potential as human beings, which is cool and exciting, but also uh, sort of daunting. So yeah, um, just seeing scenario planning as one of the ways that we can work towards this was really cool for me. And it's a way of thinking that I would love to introduce into my life more. Maybe not in such a regimented way as would be required for the business advising and scientific usage that Lawrence gave as examples, but just more loosely interpreted, uh, like when I'm sitting down to make a decision or formulate a good plan for the future. Um, instead of sitting there and uh, I guess like painting a very concrete picture in my head of how the future is going to look, uh, maybe I should consider trying to, I guess, draw more of like a, a web of possibilities. There are just so many different things that, uh, and so many different possibilities that could go wrong to upset that picture. Um, and while it may look pretty and be what my mind probably wants to do rather than trying to consider all the uh, different possibilities, it really just simply isn't the best way to go about things. Another cool point and just good reminder was the warning that Lawrence gave against any idea of objective truth. Just how we are all so prone to get attached to our own stories and put so much faith behind them that we can become resistant to the idea that we could possibly be wrong. Um, so Lawrence very strongly suggested that we try and rebuild our commitment to learning and open-mindedness to revision. And that's something that very strongly resonated with me. Um, 
as I mentioned in our conversation, uh, both with my philosophy, but I really feel like it also kind of just plays into just taking ourselves less seriously. Um, we all work so hard to establish ourselves and our identities and our ideas um, against a pretty pretty competitive field of everyone else out there. Um, and then without even pausing to think if we are right, we sort of set out to promote and self-advocate for this sense of self as strongly as possible. And yeah, uh, coming off of this conversation, I can really see how that isn't the best way to go about things. Um, and I really loved how the above ideas really resonated with virtue ethics, um, Aristotle fanboy that I am. But it was really cool for me to hear from Lawrence literally the same ideas that I have been reading about uh, in Alastair McIntyre's After Virtue and his critique of the sort of winner-take-all culture that we have in terms of ideas in today's world. Um, and it was super cool to see how that dovetails with scenario planning as a way of sort of forcing ourselves to look at the harsh realities in the eyes and deal with them rather than leaving it to the next generation or, or as in Lawrence's Florida example to the next set of homeowners to move into the house uh, to deal with. Anyways, thanks for listening. I hope that today's show was not only fun, but perhaps set off some trains of thought to new and interesting destinations. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the episode, have ideas for future episodes, or just general feedback about the show, feel free to shoot me an email at wcilio20 at cmc.edu. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Cilio, and this is Think Like a Human. <laughs>